wild birds between slices of cassava, cabbies driving around with cheesesteaks, and a Canadian dish with a surprisingly sweet sauce. This week, it's all about sandwiches. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies at DestinationEatDrink.com and on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're sampling lots of great treats between two slices of bread. Yep, some of the best sandwiches in the whole wide world. But first, if you want to keep up with Destination Eat Drink and all the stuff we do, not just the podcast, but foodie travel guides on the website, blog posts from around the world, and videos too, Sign up for our newsletter at DestinationEatDrink.com. This week's episode is about sandwiches. Such a simple idea, put delicious stuff between two slices of bread, but that simplicity leads to wild creativity and iconic dishes all over the world. So let's revisit some of my favorite conversations about sandwiches from the Cubanos, Italian, and Jewish influences to the strategic rumor that boosted sandwich sales in Philly, to a sandwich with bacon rolled in cornmeal in Toronto, and much more, too. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Robin Webb is a foodie tour guide in Miami. She tells me about the fascinating history of the Cubano sandwich. Hold on to your seat because I'm going to tell you something that you may or may not know. What you can say about the Cuban sandwich, it may have been born in Cuba, but it was educated in Key West, Florida. (laughs) The truth about it, its evolution really, really sprung out of America more than anything else. So very briefly, I'll give you a little history and then we'll go into the lusciousness of the sandwich itself. What happened was there was a first recorded sandwich and it was made from slices of cassava, uh, the bulbous, starchy vegetable. Mm -hmm. And this recorded sandwich doesn't sound too appetizing because they took the two pieces of cassava and stuck wild birds in the center and they called it a sandwich. The sandwich kind of evolved a little bit when the Spanish came to the island to conquer it. They brought ham, they brought a few things, but the sandwich never really got anywhere and so what happened was when cubans were leaving cuba even well before castro we're talking you know this is 18th century 17th century they're leaving to go for freedom they didn't want to be under the thumb of a conquistador so they came and they came to key west florida because it was close and they could also be employed in the cigar industry the easiest thing to eat as a worker in a cigar factory, of course, is a sandwich. So that's when it started to really take off. And then the, so the sandwich got a little bit better. It went from cassava bread to real bread. It went from wild birds to ham. And it started to kind of evolve a little bit. And then the whole story takes a complete another twist. One very, very tragic day, the largest cigar company of them all, owned by a man, his name is Ebor, Y-B-O-R. And his factory just burned to the ground, heartbroken. He did not want to rebuild in Key West. He had some business associates up in Tampa and they said, Mr. Ebor, why don't you come up here and rebuild your cigar factory? He said, that's a good idea. So he went and effectually he took all the workers with him, kind of like left Key West with not enough workers to do cigars. So that 
industry kind of ceased in Key West and oil is now concentrated in Tampa. So up in Tampa, you got to feed these people again. Where we feed them, sandwich, the sandwich really takes off. At the time that the sandwich is really getting good, um, another group joins them up in Tampa and they're the Italians in the form of bricklayers. And the Italians and the Cubans get along. In honor of their Italian friends, the Cubans add something you do not see in a Miami Cubano, and that is salami. Mm. To this very day, you can see salami in a Cubano in Tampa, which still has a very large Cuban population. They love it. We think they're out of their minds. <laughs> so um, we love it. It's true. So now you have the Cubans and you have the Italians. Then you have a third group that joins them. One of the ingredients in a proper Cuban sandwich, actually two of the ingredients, is mustard and pickles. Doesn't sound Cuban, does it, Brad? Not at all. No. Okay, it's German Jewish. So now you've got three influences on the sandwich. You've got Italian, Cuban, and Jewish. So the sandwich, you know, just really thrives up there. One of the first bakeries that ever bakes Cuban bread. It's all happening in Tampa. You have to bear in mind at this time, this is well before uh, Cuban exodus from Castro. So how is Miami so famous for it? Well, here's the thing. When we came, when Cubans started coming about 1959, you know, they have relatives here on the other coast. They can easily see the sandwich. They take that sandwich. They see it. They want it. They make it better than everybody else. Mm. So that's my story. Sticking to it. Uh, <laughs> but that's who we are here. We, 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 do, when we have such a large population. I, I, I don't know the answer to whether or not our population of Cubans is larger than Tampa today, but I know that there are plenty of Cubans still living in the Tampa area and they still enjoy their salami on their sandwich. Um, but the sandwich itself is a really proper one. You only have the five ingredients. So that would be ham and pork. The Swiss cheese and the pickles, as I mentioned, cheese and, um, what did I just say? Ha! Ham, pork, Swiss cheese, pickles, and mustard. Yes, five. Five ingredients only, and of course, on Cuban bread. And what makes Cuban bread Cuban bread is that they still, and not all of them, I think, Brent, but they still make it with some lard. And that gives it a really nice, tender, and delicious mouthfeel. Um, which is wonderful. And it's basically a white flour product, but the way that it is baked, it's baked in long loaves, you know, like French baguettes, um, about three feet long. And it's just tender, yet still crunchy. So when you eat one, you can just, you know, hear your jaw going crunch, crunch, which is really nice. Um, so that that's what makes a proper Cubana sandwich. And not everybody makes it this way. There are people who add lettuce and tomato. Us Miami purists would never dream of that, but I see it. Mayonnaise, I've seen it. I don't like it. <laughs> so really for us, it's those five ingredients only that makes a great Cubana. Philadelphia and cheesesteaks, they're inseparable. Matt Shalizi from Philadelphia City Food Tours tells me about where the cheesesteak came from and the role of cheese whiz in the sandwich. <laughs> so I get this question all the time, probably more of this than any other question is about the cheesesteaks. So, and we latch um, onto them pretty quickly um, because, of course, we do it better than anywhere else. Um, but also, Philadelphia, the pH level in the water here is actually ideal for cheesesteaks. But similar to how, like, you New Yorkers think that their pizza is better than anywhere else, their yes. bagels are anywhere else. 
it's a big part is the water because when you cook, water is a major ingredient for almost everything that you're you're cooking with. So so it just works really well for our cheesesteaks and also with our pretzels, which we'll get into as well. But cheesesteaks was actually it, it, it wasn't an accident the way that it started, but it was two brothers in South Philly that originally had a hot dog stand. And after a long time of just serving hot dogs, like, you know, let's do something a little bit different. So they got some beef and they chopped it up and to spice it up, they mixed some uh, fried onions in there. And then the only thing they had to put it on was actually a hot dog bun. Mm. So, so that was kind of the start of this new sandwich. Actually, they didn't put cheese on it first. So it was just called a steak sandwich. And it was uh, the cab drivers that helped get that first business going to them. And as they would bring customers into their, their cars and they would drive them around, they would smell this new steak sandwich and it would <laughs> circulate these new smells around South Philly and the Italian market as well that people started to crave these new steak sandwiches. Um, funny enough is they've, they've been pretty strategic with how they've pushed their business forward over the years. And a, a funny example of that is in the Great Depression, um, when it was it was hard to get big rations of beef and other meats that they were able to, to still get the inventory that they needed, but people were starting to spread the rumor that they weren't using real uh, beef, they're using horse meat instead. Oh, okay. So what they ended up doing was they took an ad out in the newspaper and said, Hey, if you can prove that we're using horse meat, we'll give you ten thousand dollars. Oh yeah, they got so business for people trying to prove they're using horse meat instead of real beef because I mean ten thousand dollars even today, I mean it's a, a great prize if you could win that. But Great Depression, I mean that was life changing. So so people wanted to try to prove them wrong. Um, so they got a lot of great business out of it. But later on, it came out actually that I'll give you one guess. Who do you think started that whole rumor of the horse meat? The the vendor themselves. You got it. <laughs> That's just it. Yeah, the brothers themselves. They're the ones who started that rumor. So they've been using their strategic wit in terms of, of keeping their business alive. Um, and nowadays, they also rely on competition to keep themselves alive because these brothers were Pat and Harry Oliveri. So they now have what's now known as Pat's, the originator of the cheesesteak, um, right across the street from Gino's. A lot of people think of Pat's and Gino's as like one entity. Um, when in fact, if, you, if you've been there, you'll notice they're actually two separate locations on the same corner. They face one another. Um, it's, it's almost like a... a a Times Square intersection where there's like triangles, one on one corner and one on the other. And they look completely different from one another. Or Pat's, um, it's not maybe as well lit as Gino's, but tourists and some locals will go to both. They're open 24 seven. There's always lines at both. But, uh, but yeah, we just love our G6 so much. And it's, but yeah, so it didn't start off by accident per se, but, uh, but that story is just such a Philly thing. And then later on, we actually, um, once we started adding cheese, it wasn't until about like 20, 30 years after the steak sandwich started that we started adding cheese onto it. And the Italians that they were, they gravitated towards provolone. That was their cheese of choice. Yeah. yeah. And then once cheese whiz came out, I mean, it just went insane. Because when you look at something, I mean, so if you're not from Philadelphia, cheese whiz, think of almost like a molten kind of liquidy like cheese um almost like you're gonna melt like velveta on top of your nachos almost something like that so uh so it worked really well with our cheese sticks and that's why it just it just 
what makes it what it is. I mean, you can't use that cheese whiz for anything. Like, you can't make a grilled cheese out of cheese whiz. You can't put it on pizza. Well, I'm sure you can. I'm sure people come it. But, but cheese whiz has, like, a specific type of food it's supposed to go with. And a cheesesteak is perfect for that because it looks like this this gourmet rich cheese that looks like you were like slaving over your stove all day making it when in fact it comes out of the can looking exactly the way it does when you eat it all you do is just you just have to heat it up a little bit and there you go so when we had our steak sandwiches and then we started adding cheese and then cheese was came out you're like you know what this is all we really need so yeah so cheese sticks are really big for us what a lot of people don't know is that uh people who grew up and live in Philadelphia, a lot of them actually prefer to get their cheesesteaks kind of like on the outskirts of Philly, um, where a lot of people who visit Philadelphia, they'll just assume the best cheesesteaks are in like Center City or maybe Old City where a lot of the attractions are. Um, but if you if you come by Philadelphia and you want to find a great cheesesteak, I mean, you can go within Center City, South Philly, North Philly, West Philly. There's really nowhere you're going to get like a bad cheesesteak per se. But a lot of people don't realize you can actually just go into any old pizza shop. And they'll have a whole menu of different types of cheesesteaks to get as well. So you don't have to go to one of those like big name places like Jim, John Luke's, Alessandro's. I mean, those, if you want to certainly go, go ahead and do so. Um, but on our food tours, we take our guests into a place on 13th Street called Zio's. It's a regular pizza shop. It's like that mom pop type shop. You might walk right by it and not think that that's a great place to go to get a real Philly cheesesteak. Um, but when our guests have those cheesesteaks, they absolutely love them. So I got a question about the cheese whiz because I'm familiar with cheese whiz. I, I was a college student at one point and, <laughs> you know, I might've taken a shot of cheese whiz straight out of the nozzle. But the, <laughs> the question is, do they actually spray the cheese whiz onto the cheesesteak from the can or do restaurants have like vats of cheese whiz and they're taking a spatula and spreading it out? How does the cheese whiz actually get onto the meat itself? It's actually more of the latter where people don't don't know there's many types of cheese whiz where cheese whiz can come in that spray can. We don't use that here in Philadelphia. Um, I can't even remember the last time I saw I might have been like a kid the last time I saw that. But um, you know, we use it. It's it's more of like a liquid B consistency and we heat it up. So um, it is usually refrigerated. Um, so think of like if you have like that, that small jar of Tostitos, like cheese that you want to put on top of your nachos, mm. like a queso sauce. It's kind of like that. Um, of course, it's not chunky at all. Um, it's not, I actually have never seen anywhere put like slices of jalapenos or maybe some like pico de gallo. The places don't really do that. So they're cheese whiz because cheese whiz is its own uh, ingredient uh, that places like to use and keep, they know that people want the whiz just for what it is. Kevin Durkee is the founder of Culinary Adventure Company. They offer food tours in Toronto, Canada. He tells me about the iconic pea meal bacon sandwich. Brent, have you ever heard of pea meal bacon before? Not until I started researching Toronto. So <laughs> I did want to ask you about the pea meal sandwich. What is this thing exactly? Yeah, so the St. Lawrence market is sort of the epicenter to, to really try Toronto's signature dish, the pea meal bacon uh, sandwich. And it's a really incredible little story because for almost 200 years, it's been 
created as an export product. We had a gentleman um, come to Canada called William Davies. He was a butcher in the St. Lawrence market. And although he was from England and really had passion back to the UK, he was trying to find a way to encourage export and import and a variety of things in the late 1800s. And he established this opportunity where he was raising pork in Toronto and basically breaking that product down, placing it into barrels, putting it onto ships and sending it back to London. But to make sure that it was cured, to make sure that it was going to you know, take the amount of time it was going to get there and to keep it as fresh as possible, he cured the pork, but he also added a ground pea meal to the outside so that moisture and things through the transportation would sort of get away from the center of the pork loin. And that turned us into this remarkable sort of center cut pork that's lightly brined, that has this light crunch on the outside, and it's called pea meal bacon. Of course, you know, decades and decades later, this sandwich and this particular pork item is a signature of the St. Lawrence Market. And Carousel Bakery, who's been around for uh, well over 50 years, is really the center where to get that sandwich. So you're biting into this tender, soft pork that it's been lightly cured little beautiful layer of salt it's been you know flash fried on a on a stovetop and really provide a little bit of heat and crisp on a very simple brioche bun is one of the best bites inside saint lawrence i love the idea of a sweet bun on the sandwich the brioche bun would there be other toppings involved or is it just strictly the cutlet and the bun together Well, on our food tours, we certainly encourage our guests to try it in its natural state, if you will, so you can taste the actual pork and the tender and the lovely um, sweetness of the bun and the softness. But of course, you when you become addicted to it, like almost all Torontonians do, you've got your own little mix. Um, We would certainly encourage Canadian mustard to be added, um, whether that's a little bit of a, a spicier mustard or maybe a sweet maple mustard, a little drop of that. If you've got a bit of a British following, then it's some brown sauce or HP, but it's good on its own, but certainly any little condiment will help out. But it typically tends to be a mustard um, more than anything else. To round out our sandwich tour, we head east to the Maritimes of Canada with more from Kevin Durkee. This time, it's Nova Scotia and him telling us about the Donair. I want to talk about a sandwich in Nova Scotia called the Donair. Um you know, of course, living in Europe, I'm familiar with the Donair Kebab, which sounds like its cousin. We've had it in Berlin and places like this. It's, uh, you know, you've got Turkish people all over Europe, so you see this everywhere. But I'd never heard of the Donair until I started researching Nova Scotia. Tell me about the sandwich a little bit, if you could, Kevin. Well, the Donair is really very much, again, another sort of quintessential Canadian culinary story where a lot of flavors and Um, cuisine sort of came together to make this really unique dish. It really started in the late 60s and early 70s when a lot of Greek immigration came into the East Coast, into the Halifax region. Greek families were coming. They were establishing businesses. They were using Canada as the new home and the new world. And a gentleman by the name of Peter Galamakis had a little pizza shop in Halifax called Velo's Pizza. And originally from Greece, he wanted to sort of start to extend and to offer a few different things. And he was making an Eero style sandwich. So just like you were talking about something that is for more towards Greek, you know, grilled meats, you know, put into a pita, um, lots of different flavors. 
But Canada and Canadians at the time, we were really a little bit reluctant to the lamb and to the yogurt-based tzatziki that it was putting into this incredible Eero. Now, of course, it's a staple across the country, but back in the early 70s, particularly in the Maritimes, a little bit more you know, remote working class, maybe not as many flavors available to the palate at that time. They're like, ooh, we're not exactly sure what this is about. So he actually started to redevelop the sandwich, this beautiful doner, and he substituted the lamb for a spiced beef. He also made a sweeter sauce using evaporated milk and moved it closer to the Turkish doner, where which was more of the lettuce and the tomato, the sweeter sauce and the spiced beef. And it immediately took off and it became very, very successful and became a destination for Halifax. He eventually opened a little business uh, shortly thereafter called the King of Denaire and is obviously a running staple um, to this day and is very much an icon. But I think the Denaire is, is one of those things where the sweet sauce is a bit of a surprise. You think of a tzatziki with that rich yogurty cucumber garlic punch where you've got a sweet sauce, the Dornier sauce, which is now a dip for almost anything across the region. It's quite sweet. And it's surprising if you don't sort of know what you're biting into first, but it really complements the chewy, rich, you know, decadent pita and the incredible spiced beef that's there. So it's a little bit of a regional specialty. Um, but trust me, uh, when you try it, and certainly any of your audience tries it, they'll be hooked. It's, uh, it's a flavor now that has become synonymous for the region you can get denaire flavored potato chips you can get oh. denaire you know dipping sauce for your pizzas and a variety of things it's very much the halifax and nova scotia icon like we talked about putin being sort of recognized for quebec the denaire is definitely the king for uh, nova scotia it's the uh, it's the ranch dressing of nova scotia <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it for sure okay there you go Not only some great sandwiches on the show this week, but so much interesting history. If you'd like to hear the entire episodes with all my guests, check out the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED218. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on your podcast app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so very much. Next week, we're in Sydney, Australia for craft beer, unusual ice cream flavors, and the friendly rivalry between the Aussies and the Kiwis in New Zealand. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just published a foodie travel guide to Cordoba, Spain. It's a fascinating history with some great local dishes. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash Cordoba. And before we leave, let me express my sadness at the passing of Lynn Bramer. Lynn was an institution on the airwaves in Chicago as midday host and morning host at WXRT for almost 40 years. I pretty much grew up listening to Lynn, and he was kind enough to be on the podcast a couple years ago. At that time, the station had a policy against doing podcasts, but Lynn was an enthusiastic foodie. He wanted to do the show, so he pushed his bosses. They relented, and I'll always be grateful to Lynn for that. And it was a great interview, too. He is so funny and nice and entertaining. He told some great stories. If you want to listen to that episode, it's at radiomisfits.com slash DED111. I've also got that in the show notes if you want to listen. Rest in peace, Lynn.
Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.